if you continually exceed basically what your body is wanting to do, sooner or later the body is going to react in a negative way to that. So it, it doesn't mean – this is something I get with people saying all the time. They say, well, my HIV or recovery was a little bit low, but I still felt really strong in the gym. Okay, well, it's not saying that you can't do those things. It's just saying that if you do those things, it's going to slow down your recovery processes even further. What's up, everyone? This is the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Bukowski. I created this podcast because after spending 20 years of my life trying to build as much muscle as humanly possible, I realized there's a lot of other things that are necessities in both building an amazing body with you know large muscles, low body fat, and ultimately being healthy that I just wasn't paying attention to. There's so many things that go in that... Uh, perhaps even more so than training, influence the way you look and the way you feel and the way your mind works. And today's topic is something you guys have been hearing from me a lot lately, and that is heart rate variability, the autonomic nervous system, and energy systems, and how all of these things are dictating the way you look and the way you feel. My guest today is Joel Jameson, who is the first guy who ever introduced HRV to me way back in 2012 with his system called BioForce HRV. He's now evolved into creating a brand called Morpheus, which is a fully integrated tracking system for HRV and sleep and, and training and how to look at optimizing recovery. Joel is incredibly brilliant, so much so that a lot of the stuff he says is extremely nonchalant. He comes across and says it like you already know these things. So I, I highly suggest that you pay attention to his words and not just looking at the words he emphasizes, but looking at those things he seems to kind of gloss over and say without any emphasis, because there's so much gold in this conversation for anyone looking to not only build muscle, but lose fat or perform better or live longer or sleep better or feel better cognitively, perform better cognitively, like heart rate variability is the determining factor, it seems, in looking at how to optimize all these things, or at least how to measure how all these things uh, interrelate and uh, affect your outcomes. Uh, heart rate variability is an incredibly valuable tool, and Joel is one of the top authorities in the entire world on this topic. So we get into everything you're gonna need to know around the autonomic nervous system, uh, the sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic energy systems, how to use the, this information to apply directly to your training, and so much more. Um, Joel joins us from Kirkland, Washington, where he lives and thrives uh, and drives helicopters or flies helicopters, which is amazing. So obviously he's uh, enjoying life and trying to keep his HRV low, even though that might keep mine really high, as we talk about a little bit uh, at the end of the podcast here. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Joel Jamison. And if anyone you know is 
uh, maybe struggling to build uh, a great body, or maybe they're working really, really hard and feel like they're not getting the results that they deserve, or maybe they're having a hard time losing fat, or maybe they're having a hard time with sleep or stress or inflammation. This is the podcast to share with them because HRV and uh, ultimately autonomic nervous system is the gateway to improving all these things. So share this episode with at least one person you know who strives to live their greatest life in a body that they love and enjoy the podcast with Joel Jameson. Awesome. Joel, what's going on, man? Tell me what's going on in your life, what you're excited about. And we just got a few seconds there to, to uh, catch up, but I'd love to hear um, all about your what you're currently excited about. Yeah, you know, I've been working on some technology for the last couple of years uh, called Morpheus. It's a recovery. I call it a digital recovery coach. So we're, we're continuing to work on that. I've got a new device that's part of that system that I'm really excited about coming out here in uh, June or so. And then along with that, I've been putting together a conditioning program that automatically adjusts to people, which is something that, uh, you know, I think is really kind of the future of training is how do you truly personalize people's training without totally. them having to be a professional, you know, coach themselves. So, uh, so working on that. What type of yeah. biometrics is, is Morpheus um, looking at? Is it exclusively HRV or other variables as well? Nope. So, so Morpheus essentially looks at all the big picture stuff. It looks at how much, uh, how much you walk or your activity in a day and calories. It looks at your sleep, uh, sleep quality. It looks at HRV. It looks at training and it looks at subjective markers, you know, how you feel, what soreness levels you report, those kind of things. And essentially aggregates all that data. And the cool thing is it does it using trackers people already have. So mm -hmm. if you have a Fitbit, if you have... Uh, you know, Apple Watch, whatever devices people are already using, it'll pull in the calories and the activity to sleep from that. And then our Morpheus band is what you use to actually measure HRV. And it takes all that data and essentially runs some numbers and comes up with a recovery score. And so that's, you know, zero to 100, zero being dead and, you know, 100% being 100% recovered. Mm -hmm. um, and then from that, it gives you three heart rate zones for the day. So it gives you essentially a blue zone, which is your recovery zone. So if you want to facilitate recovery, you go hit your blue zone for you know 30, 40 minutes, and you'll see your recovery score go up. Uh, if you want to hit out some conditioning that day, you've got a green zone. You spend more, most of your time in that green conditioning zone, and over time, that's what's going to build your HRV and build your conditioning. And then there's a red zone, which is essentially kind of your high intensity or max intensity, which you know if your recovery is high, you can spend some time in there. If your recovery is low, you want to avoid that. And then the cool thing is after the workout, it'll then see how much you know volume intensity you used, and it'll adjust your recovery score accordingly. So if you woke up and you were you know, let's say a 90% recovered and you go smash yourself, it'll, it might drop your recovery score 15, 20 points. If it's, you know, a more moderate workout, it might drop it, you know, five to 10. So it's just a way to gauge the overall impact of that workout. And then again, that'll also be factored into the following day's recovery. So I really wanted to show something or give something that people that would help them put all the pieces together because people often, uh, as you know well, I'm sure, un underestimate the importance of sleep and diet and training and all these things that all go together. There's there's not one thing. It's everything put together. And so, uh, you know, I started building Morpheus. It was how do we put all these pieces together in a way that simplified into just a single recovery score and heart rate zones for people, you know, instead of having to expect them to be able to sort through all these numbers themselves and figure out what it all means. Morpheus does that for them. Right. How long have you been doing this? Well, so I came out with my first HRV system in 2012, and that was called BioForce HRV. Mm -hmm. And we, co we collected about a million and a half data points from HRV users all over the world. And then I started working at Morpheus about three years ago, um, and it took about a year and a half to really develop. Um, so we re launched that in December of 2018. So it's been on the market uh, a little over a year, a year and three months now. 
Um, and we've been, like I said, just collecting more and more data now. And the cool thing is the more data we get, the more we can start to analyze. So what we're starting to look at now is what do the, you know, what, what does somebody with an HRV, which, which represents higher conditioning, you know, of an 80 to 90 score look like compared to somebody who's got a lower conditioning score, like a 60 to a 70, what does their average sleep look like? How many steps they take per day? How much time they spend in different intensity zones? We can start to profile and see like what really is driving people to have higher levels of conditioning and recovery. We can start to really, uh, you know, pull out some answers that will help us guide people's training in a more effective way. What type of athletes do you find benefit most from like guiding their training with these uh, heart rate zones? Is it is it kind of anybody, or is there a very specific demographic you're working with? Oh, I mean, any, anybody that needs to develop aerobic fitness, I would say, or conditioning, um, you know, it's going to benefit from having that personalized element to it because. Yeah, I think heart rate zone training, as it stands today, for way most people do it, is totally outdated. It's 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 five zones. They're static. They're based on some generic 220 minus age bullshit heart rate max formula. You know, they they never change. There's just nothing uh, really personalized about them. There's nothing engaging. It's not fun to go in zone four. Like what what does that mean? So it, you know, anyone who's doing any sort of heart rate training, I think it's it's hugely valuable to have them personalized to you on a given day. Um, and it's just a more effective way to approach it. So, you know, any, anybody that's trying to live longer, anyone that's trying to perform anything, I mean, there's there's a reason uh, to do some some level of conditioning regardless of your sure. goal. Has Morpheus a, a real-time system where, like, we have some type of mechanism in front of us, whether on, on our, on our um, tracking mechanism or our phone, where we can kind of watch and adjust in real time? Or is it just going to give us, you know, a, a prescription ahead of time on how much time oh, we so- spend each zone? Nope. So basically, it's uh, right now the the app is on the mobile on your phone. So mm-hmm. as you're training, it's it's recording your workout and it's showing you what zone you're in. So if you've gone into like an orange theory, you see like a big heart rate zone on the screen mm-hmm. that shows you your color zone. When Morpheus gives you that same concept, but it gives you a blue, green, or, an, or a red zone, so you can see real time what zone you're actually in during the workout. And then the new device that we're working on essentially is is more of a watch type of deal. So on the watch, you'll see what colored zone you're in and what your heart rate is. So that was kind of the the limitation we found so far is not everybody wants to work out with their phone in front of them, which is understandable. Cool. So the new device, like I said, will go more on a you know wrist arm strap. So people will be able to, you know, ditch the phone and go work out and see what colored zone they're in. And then again afterwards, they would just sync with their phone, upload all the data that way. Amazing. So I first found your you and your stuff back in 2012, maybe even sooner than that actually. And I think right when you came out with BioForce, and I was most intrigued with all this information you were putting about HRV. And at the time, as a bodybuilder, I knew nothing about what it was, and I knew nothing of the implications. Um, could you just start giving the audience a bit of an overview? So I've had some people on before to talk about HRV, but I think your explanations are uh, incredible. Obviously, you're probably one of the world experts on HRV and its implications. And I'd love to just kind of start giving the audience an overview because, uh, you know, for anyone who doesn't know what it is, I think it's such a valuable um, piece of information. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of different ways to, you know, to look at it and describe it. But what it, what it really comes down to, if you want to strip it down to the, the essentials, is, is energy, okay? Your body is all without energy because if your body ever doesn't produce energy, you're going to die within, you know, minutes, right? You can't last long without energy. That's why you can't stop breathing because you can't produce uh, energy without aerobic uh, metabolism. So in order to coordinate all the body systems internally and to make sure that it's directing energy where it needs to go, your body has this thing called the autonomic nervous system. And everybody's familiar with the central nervous system, which is, you know, walking and moving around and motor control, not all that sort of stuff. 
But the autonomic system basically is doing everything behind the scenes. So it's keeping your blood pressure and your heart rate and your oxygen levels. It's keeping all these things where they need to be. And it's also directing where the energy and metabolism produces goes. And really, there's we can look at two sides. We can look at essentially producing energy for activity and, and dealing with those sorts of things. And we can look at energy for rebuilding tissues and building bigger, stronger uh, you know, cells throughout the body. So we basically have what we call the fight or flight system, which is the sympathetic. And that system's turned on. It produces a ton of energy that's designed to basically prepare your body for fight or flight. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's a catabolic system. So you know, bodybuilders love to hear anabolic, catabolic. The, the sympathetic system is a catabolic system, right? It's breaking down energy in order for your body to be able to go fight or flight. So if I'm going to go do a big workout or I see someone get hit by a truck, I need to sprint across the road, boom, my sympathetic system kicks on. A whole bunch of energy floods my system, and now I can sprint or I can lift the weights or I can do whatever. On the other side of it, we have the parasympathetic nervous system, and that system's job is basically to store energy. It's to rebuild muscle tissue. It's to uh, you know, support the immune system. It's to support hormone production. It's the anabolic side of the equation. Okay, It's what's causing energy to be redirected into building and rebuilding and restoring tissues and cells throughout the body. So what we want to see normally is that, you know, is a good healthy balance between these two systems. And if we're trying to build muscle or trying to improve cardiovascular fitness, obviously we want to be a little bit more anabolic than catabolic, right? We want to be storing and using the energy to repair our tissues more. We want to be breaking them down. So in a nutshell, heart rate variability is, is evaluating that balance between those two halves of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic system, again, which is catabolic and the parasympathetic system, which is anabolic. Because what we're measuring with HRV is that parasympathetic nervous system function. We're getting essentially an overall gauge of what our body is doing with, it, with its energy. Is it in a catabolic state and breaking down energy because it thinks there's a fight or flight scenario, even though there might not be? Uh, you know, again, it can be mental stress, it can be lack of sleep, it could be nutritional stress. All these things will cause us to go into a catabolic state where energy is being redirected. Or are we in a you know, recovery, rebuilding, anabolic state driven by the parasympathetic system. So HRV just evaluates essentially that balance and can show us over time what our body is doing internally. And obviously, if our goal is to improve our fitness, if we're in a catabolic state much more than we're in an anabolic state, we're going to run into trouble over the long run. Sure. You know, so it's, it's, what it sounds like you're saying, though, and, and I want you to clarify this, is that if I'm in a, if I'm in a sympathetically dominant state, I'm breaking down energy, and the audience may misconstrue that to... to um, mean that it's a fat loss state. So it, would, well, someone, would someone who's looking to lose fat thereby want to be more sympathetically oriented? I mean, in, in, to an extent, yes. Okay. If you're talking about losing fat, why, why do we take sympathetic stimulants, right? Stimulants are a massive sympathetic driver, right? Mm -hmm. We take pre-workout stimulants. We take ephedrine and caffeine. All these things are doing is activating the sympathetic nervous system because we're breaking down you know, we're breaking down energy. So yep. yes, if, if, if you're trying to lose fat, you do want to have a little bit more sympathetic activation. The problem is if you go too far that direction, okay, that's where you run into bigger caloric deficits than necessary. That's where you're going to start getting injured. You're going to start getting overtrained. Your body's going to start trying to decrease the sympathetic function because you're bombarding it chronically with sympathetic uh, stimulants, that sort of thing. So yes, if your goal is to lose fat, you do actually want a little bit more sympathetic activity than somebody who's trying to, you know, gain muscle or someone right. who's trying to gain performance. Again, it's always just, you know, what's appropriate for the individual. And again, you don't want to go so far in that sympathetic realm. You've all seen that, you know, if you're living on caffeine and ephedrine and aspirin, the old school stack, and you're not sleeping, you know, more than five hours a night, yeah, you might lose some fat, but you're going to start losing muscle tissue. You're going to start losing other things as well. 
Interesting. Now, tying this together with the other stuff you're talking about, so you mentioned to me that you had put together a certification system for over 4,000 coaches on energy systems. And I'd love to start bridging the gap between how HRV uh, is impacting energy systems and how energy systems are impacting how we're training. So um, do you see a, a nice um, line there to start tying uh, how HRV into how the HRV systems are, are, sorry, the autonomic nervous system is impacting energy systems? Sure. So there's there's a really interesting correlation uh, between HRV, essentially your, your average HRV score, and your VO2 max, which is kind of the generic, you know, big picture of aerobic fitness and conditioning. So people with higher HRV are inherently going to have higher levels of aerobic fitness, and there's just a very strong relationship between the two, uh, simply because, again, if that parasympathetic system is our rest and digest and recover and repair system, more and more training that develops, you know, the aerobic system is going to support greater levels of HRV. In other words, we, we become better at re recovering from everything. It's not just training. We become better at recovering from life itself and all mm -hmm. the stresses of life. So we're able to cope with, uh, you know, less sleep and mental stress better if we have higher levels of aerobic fitness and thus greater parasympathetic or greater levels of HRV. And there's actually a lot of studies looking at life expectancy and HRV it also correlates. So if people have HRV in the 80s and 90s, they have a greater life expectancy than people who have HRV in the 50s and 60s. Essentially, what it's showing us is that the aerobic energy system is hugely important for a lot of things. It's important for recovery. It's important for age uh, and disease prevention. It's important for just well-being and fitness. It's, a, you know, it's important for you know, a lot of different things that cross a lot of different areas of fitness. And HRV is the single best gauge we have of seeing where that is actually at in, you know, in changing on a daily basis. Super interesting. Now, I know a lot of our demographic is, you know, muscle building centric, but really they're not. They're just like longevity centric and health centric and, and muscle building is a part of it, but they just ultimately want to be healthy and lean. Um, how does Morpheus start to uh, dictate a volume of aerobic training. Can you start to just kind of lay that out? Like, you know, it sounds like having better aerobic fitness is better, but is yep. that the case? I mean, or, to an extent, right? I mean, yep. you, you, you don't need, you know, the marathon runners. Aerobic right. At what point does it become a negative thing, I guess? It becomes a negative if it's taken away from, you know, let's say you do want to build muscle, you do want to have uh, you know, a certain type of physique, if you're doing so much aerobic development work, of course, it's going to compromise how much muscle you can build and, you, and your body will start to become specialized more for endurance and less for strength and power. So it's it's always about finding the right balance. But I would say, you know, your average person who just wants to be in good shape, they don't want to get cardiovascular disease or, you know, die of a stroke or all these things that, you know, impact so many people, you know, an HRV using Morpheus or using a lot of systems, you know, in the 80s is about where you want to be low to mid 80s. And again, every HRV system is different, so you can't apply that universally. Um, but we've looked at lots and lots of data. In that you know, 80 to 85 range is a good enough range for disease prevention and overall health and supports recovery. And there's really no need to go ex you know, extremely beyond that. And it's, it's the same thing resting heart rate. So resting heart rate will correlate inversely with HRV. So higher HRV is generally lower resting heart rate. Same thing. I would say most people you know, in the 30 to 50 year old range, you know, a good level of health is going to be a resting heart rate somewhere between 50 and, you know, 56, 57, 58, somewhere in that range. And the low to mid 50s is going to correlate roughly to the HRV in the low 80s uh, as far as Morpheus is concerned. So generally speaking, I mean, don't get me wrong, you can 
increase aerobic fitness well beyond that. But for the average person, it's probably a point of diminishing returns where it's going to take a whole lot more work to marginally increase aerobic fitness, in which case you're really not getting that much more benefit anyway. And again, you can probably start, you'd start to compromise, you know, building muscle and, and having, you know, a physique that most people want. So, Awesome. Can you start to guide us down the path of how our listeners can use HRV to uh, determine and decipher from how they should be training to kind of drive their training uh, decisions? Yeah. So in, in the grand scheme of things, you want to use HRV for two you know, big purposes. Number one is, you know, what does my average HRV look like? Again, like I just mentioned, it, it's a marker of a general aerobic fitness. It's a marker of how well your body can cope with stress, how well it can recover from training, all those sorts of things. So you want to look at your baseline number as a gauge of, you know, what kind of shape am I really in? Like I just mentioned, you know, if your HRV is low, then you're going to want to spend more time doing aerobic development work and conditioning to get it up again, where I just mentioned so that you can, again, have better recovery, you know, be, be less likely to get disease and all those sorts of things. Um, so that's the big, you know, picture is like, use it to track your fitness levels. Cause that's one thing people, you can track strength easily. I mean, can I lift the weight or can't I lift the weight? I can track muscle size. I can measure things. I can check, check body fat, but most people don't really understand how to measure conditioning or how to measure aerobic fitness. No one's going to go do the Cooper's test and all these things on a regular basis, but HRV allows you to see, you know, what does my conditioning level look like? And that's something I've used with athletes for many years. You know, combat athletes have to get in great shape for a fight. So we've used HRV to see where they at in their training camp versus where they need to be to make sure, you know, their fitness and their conditioning is where it needs to be before their fight. So you can use it, you know, again, it's just a baseline measurement tool. Um, and then the second way to use it again is to just adjust your programming on a daily basis uh, to prevent yourself from going again too far that direction towards that sympathetic dominant because that that's where you lead to problems. So um, you basically can, it, it depends on the system. Okay. Every, every HRV system is different. I don't want to, you know, tell everyone they have to buy Morpheus. There are other HRV systems out there. Uh, and, they, and they all work a little bit differently, but what you're looking for is is essentially large swings outside of your normal range. And that's what most of these systems these days are doing is evaluating what's this person's normal range and where are they at each day. And then from that, you're essentially able to see, like, is my body in a really, uh, you know, catabolic state? Is it really sympathetic? Is it really dealing with a lot of mental stress or physical stress or whatever stress? Or is it more in a rest, recovery, digest, relaxation, anabolic state? and making sure that that balance is where it needs to be. So, you know, on any given day, if you take your HRV and you see that it's, you know, fairly outside the norm, and again, each system will identify that a little bit differently, then you just want to be aware of it and you want to make your training decisions accordingly. What I would typically say is, you know, if someone's HRV is below, you know, 80% or so on Morpheus, other systems, again, are going to do it differently, then I would want to avoid too much max effort lifting. So I'd want to avoid, you know, squatting or lifting or anything like that above 90% of their max. I typically would want to avoid, uh, you know, heart rates above 90% or max, because those are really the places where the most stress, you know, is put on the body. Is when you're when you're really going above 90%, you know, in the upper 80s, 90%, that places a ton of stress in the body. And if we can see from HRV, the body's already under a lot of stress. There's not really a benefit to just smashing it with even more. So you just can use it for, you know, little daily adjustments like that. So let's say I have, you know, a heavy squat day, and my wake up, my HRV shows me like. I'm not really very well recovered. I might be able to either lower the volume a bit or I might say, okay, today I'm going to go in and do something else and then tomorrow I'm going to come in and do my heavy squat day or whatever the case may be. Just just to clarify, when you say heavy, are we talking like percent max or just total volume? So, Because I think well, those could be very really. different, right? Yes. I mean, it's, I want to avoid in general above 90%. So above 90% is where your fastest twitch muscle fibers are going to come into play. It's what requires the most CNS activity. It's what basically places, you know, an exponentially greater amount of stress in the body than an 80%. And it's not linear. 
right? You know, 80% sure. of one rep max is not linear up to 100. Then once you hit 90 and above, you know, that amount of stress, you know, exponentially it, greater. It's exponentially greater. So I would want to basically avoid that above 90% range. And I'd also want to just, you know, keep the volume in check. Mm-hmm. So it, it, does, it doesn't mean, you know, if my HRV shows me I'm fatigued, it doesn't mean like don't go train at all. It just means today's probably not the day to go out and, and crank out a bunch of max effort reps and go right. super heavy and, and go to you know, go to failure and you know really crush myself. I mean, today's probably a day to take a more moderate approach and allow my body to recover so I can get back after it the following day. The, pro- the problem is this, is, you know, if you continually exceed basically what your body's wanting to do, sooner or later the body's going to react in a negative way to that. So it, it doesn't mean – this is something I get with people saying all the time. They say, well, my HRV or recovery was a little bit low but I still felt really strong in the gym. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. it's not saying that you can't do those things. It's just saying that if you do those things, it's going to slow down your recovery processes even further. So really what we think of HRV is, is a prediction or a gauge of how quickly are you going to recover from this workout? Right. So, so let's say my recovery is 95% and I go do, you know, a given workout. I, I'm probably going to recover a lot faster if I started with a 95% recovery than if I started with a 75% recovery. So it's predicting or it's a gauge of, how much stress your body can recover from. And if you consistently exceed that, you know, you're going to run into problems. There's, there's no way around it. Can you, you train some really high-level athletes. Can you tell us how you use HRV to uh, determine or maybe predict nutrition? Uh, sure. I mean, the biggest thing is, especially I'll, I'll talk about combat athletes since that's who I've worked with yep. uh, the most, is, you know, these guys are training really high volumes. You know, a lot of them are training – eight, 10, 12, you know, sometimes even more sessions per week. So at, at the same time, there's a lot of them are trying to drop weight, right? Which is a very, very stressful thing. Like mm-hmm. let's train you 14, 15 hours a week and try and drop fat in the same point in time. It, right. It's very uh, tricky. So Can what I we try to do is, yeah, exactly. So you want to make sure that nutrition is, is a, you know, not too deficient because again, if you have too much of a caloric restriction, you start training too much on low carbs and all these sorts of things, you're going to see these big sympathetic changes basically in HRV. You're going to see their HRV start to plummet through the ground. So again, we're, we're using it to make sure they're, they're not spending so much time in that sympathetic side of things. Again, you want to have a little bit more than normal because you are trying to lose weight, but we want to make sure they're not spending so much time in that side of things that they're going to you know, pull a hamstring or they're going to have some sort of injury or they're just going to you know, perform poorly and be sluggish. So um, biggest thing I said is, is just making sure that they are, they, they are going to have to be in a caloric deficit, obviously, but making sure that it's a moderate enough caloric deficit that it's not going so far you know, down that path of, of overreaching because their calories just are so far off of their you know, expenditure. Right. So you see – so one of your athletes wakes up today, sees a high uh, – sorry, let's say a low level of HRV. Are you making nutritional adjustments on the fly or are you making training adjustments first? Uh, make well, we'll kind of look at their their diet first and see if it's a problem, right? I mean, make sure that they're they're actually doing what the things they're supposed to be doing. Start by making the training adjustments, and then if you if you see things again, like it's one thing if it's one time, you know, maybe one night they didn't sleep or one night they, uh, you know, were just stressed out or whatever. If it's one time, that's different than if it's all the time. If it's you're starting to see patterns, then you're going to dig a lot deeper into nutritional, and you're going to dig a lot deeper into other things as well. So. Um, you're always looking at again. What are what what is this person doing? And if you're seeing chronic issues, then it's you know it's either training, nutrition, sleep, mental. It's all those things put together, and you start diving in there. But you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say like each and every day we're trying to just micro adjust calories. We're just looking at the big picture of things and making sure the trends are headed in the right direction. Awesome. Have you ever uh, trained any athletes who are on a ketogenic diet? And and look, I'm curious how that um, will affect HRV and recovery. Yeah, you know it's interesting. It, 
you, you, what you really see with HRV is just this individuality of things. Some, some athletes look pretty good on, on ketogenic diet and they, they seem to recover just fine and their numbers look solid. And then some people, as soon as they uh, stop taking the carbs in and they, and they go into ketogenic state, they, they look worse. Like there, there's, there's not really, um, you know, a guarantee. I would say some people, again, do really well on low carb or ketogenic. Some people don't. And I think it kind of depends on their, their own biochemistry, their training history, who knows what all the variables are that drive that. Um, but I, you know, I just, I've seen varied responses. I've seen great results with some people and I've seen less than great results in other people. Interesting. Now, when you're preparing a MMA athlete or, or a combat sport athlete for um, a fight or meet or whatever it may be, uh, and you start them a fair degree of time out, you know, whether it be eight weeks out or 10 weeks out or 12 weeks out, whatever it is, what are kind of your first lines of intervention with whether that be their nutrition or the training or the supplementation as far as starting to move the needle? Um, just curious about your thought process. Is it like, you know, you, you're going to drop the hammer on the training and the nutrition or is it which is it, which lever are you pulling first? Uh, generally speaking, the training lever. Um, so I, I don't know if you're familiar with this research. A number of years ago, they did this research where they essentially tracked people in different, um, basically in different continents, and they tracked their activity levels uh, using a Fitbit, and then they used what's called the doubly labeled water technique, where they measure essentially metabolism. So we had this inherent idea that if we move 20,000 steps, that we're going to burn twice as many calories as if we walk 10,000 10, steps, right? Which would, again, we would think would be twice as much if we go 5,000 steps. That's actually not true. Uh, they, they essentially found that your body is only capable of producing a certain amount of calories in a given day. Hmm. I mean, you just your metabolism is limited. It can't produce endless amounts of calories. It can't produce 10,000 calories of energy. You just can't physically do it. There's a right. limit. It's like you know only so many hours you can work in a day. Well, there's only so many calories your energy, your body can break down in a given period of time. So, you know, if you go 30,000 steps, you're not burning three times more calories. And if you go 10,000 steps, what you're actually doing is redirecting calories from, you know, immune system function and hormonal production and tissue rebuilding, remodeling of strength and power areas into this activity. So there's, there's this basically this whole concept, it's called the energy constrained, uh, you know, model of metabolism or theory of metabolism. Basically it just says, look, your metabolism is limited and there's only so many places your body can produce or can deliver energy to or only so much it can do in a given point in time. No matter how many calories you eat, doesn't matter. You know, I can't eat 10,000 calories a day. Well, therefore I can go 30,000 steps, it doesn't work that way. Right. Same, same thing, your body can only break down so much food at a given time or over a given time. So the first thing we're going to look at is just managing training and making those training adjustments because that's where the energy expenditure side is coming from. And we've got to manage that appropriately. If we push their training too high too fast or we try to have them expend way more calories than they should, then it's obviously going to pull away from recovery. It's going to pull away from their ability to adapt to that. So I always start with the training, again, because the energy side – is limited. So I want to make sure that we are spending the energy as intelligently as possible and making those adjustments. And then over time, we'll make the dietary adjustments to, you know, accommodate and adjust to that. And again, making sure that we're not creating this huge disparity in terms of their caloric needs versus what they're actually out there uh, doing. And that's brilliant and, and so useful. Um, what are some of your top parasympathetic interventions? Like if someone's obviously sympathetically driven and maybe overtrained, what are your first lines of uh, intervening? Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's a few things. Number number one, you know, you want to try to limit stimulants, honestly, because honestly, this day and age, people live on pre-workout stimulants, and then they live on coffee and everything in between. So if you are constantly ingesting stimulants, you're essentially pushing your body into that state. So the first thing is limit their stimulants and try to, you know, avoid these external things. 
Uh, number two, we just go through what I call like a rebound workout, um, which is essentially a little bit of mobility, some breathing exercises to facilitate blood flow, a little bit of low intensity or moderate intensity cardio, uh, a little bit of light lifting to, you know, again, pump blood into different muscle groups, and then just trying to get them to rest and relax when they're not training. So it's, it's making sure they can shut that switch off when they leave the gym. So, um, you know, again, the, the first thing is, is always going to be just get them in a parasympathetic state and that's rest, relax, regenerate, you know, rebound, use rebound workouts. And then if you're, if those things still aren't working, then you can start looking at interventions like, uh, swimming and cold plunges and sauna and high cryotherapy and all these additional things that people are now turning to first. They're looking at like, you know, let's go cryotherapy every single day. Well, that's that's not a great approach. Do we you know that's a parasympathetic input, or is that like a it's a so, sympathetic that gives us a parasympathetic yes, response? Or? Exactly. That's what that's what most of these regeneration type things are. They're they're acute sympathetic drivers that cause a big parasympathetic rebound, mm -hmm. right? So it's essentially the devil's in the dose, right? If I have a little bit of sympathetic stimulus, then I can get the body to switch into that recovery mode afterwards and hopefully have a little bit of a longer impact, a longer uh, parasympathetic state than I had sympathetic state. If you overdo these things, then they're actually going to cause the opposite effect. So if I was to cryotherapy for, you know, five times a day or I was to go spend, a, you know, an hour in an ice bath or whatever, it would cause a much greater sympathetic spunk than I want. It would actually take away from recovery. So I tend to actually uh, avoid the use of those things unless it becomes really necessary. You want to stick with, again, getting people to just mentally relax, going through meditation every day, making sure their nutrition's on point and their calories aren't too low, making sure they're getting enough sleep, making sure... Uh, you know, they're they're going through breathing, mobility, and doing all these things to facilitate recovery at the end of a workout. So that's actually one thing people uh, don't do near enough of is a cool down. Mm -hmm. People nowadays will go through these ridiculously elaborate warm-ups, and then they'll just finish their last set and walk out of the gym. So <laughs> And go shove a cheeseburger down their gullet. Yeah, exactly. So what I actually have people really focus on is, is a you know, a five- to ten-minute cool-down process where the goal is – Get your heart rate as close to your resting heart rate or at least, at least as close to it was when you walked in the gym when you leave. So if you can do that, you're basically shutting out that sympathetic system quicker and you're activating that recovery parasympathetic system as you're leaving the gym versus, you know, going out and having a Red Bull and, like I said, pounding a cheeseburger and staying in that sympathetic state for an extra hour or two. You've just sabotaged, you know, the first couple hours of recovery, which are really a big driver of things. So, you know, I think it's really important for people to cool down properly and make sure that they're doing everything they can to shut that sympathetic system off and get that parasympathetic system working as soon as you leave the gym. Man, that's brilliant. You're one of the only other people I've heard say that. Like, that's my first line of intervention for every one of my clients. It's like, if you can't sit on your ass for five minutes and put your phone away, don't bother putting in a post-workout shake. Don't even bother putting in a post-workout meal until you do that because, I mean, at some point, your body will obviously come down uh, from that elevated sympathetic state. But, you know, the faster you can do it, like you say, the faster you can kind of get your body back into digestive mode and get your stomach emptying and get those calories yep. that you need to start recovery back in. Yep. It makes a huge difference. And I'll say that the one thing – so this is – people always talk about, uh, you know, performance-enhancing drugs, and I've I've seen people on them, and I've seen your HRV. And you know, what, you know what it does? It makes you massively parasympathetic. I mean, really? literally, that's – yeah, absolutely. That's like anabolic steroids what, or, or what? Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. You'll see someone's HRV jump, you know, 5, 10 points as soon as their hmm. blood levels of tests start to go up or whatever they're taking, simply because that's – I mean, what? Think about it. What do anabolic steroids do? They increase protein synthesis sure. in anabolic. You know, the more anabolic, that inherently means you're more parasympathetic. So, you will see people who are on drugs. You will see their HRV system skyrocket, and they will stay there. You won't see these drops after their workouts because their body just boom instantly shuts off sympathetic and goes into this parasympathetic state, because that's essentially what the drugs are doing is facilitating parasympathetic function and recovery. I had no idea. Now. 
a couple of things you said in there, like you say a lot of things very nonchalantly in passing, and I, and I don't want to just uh, gloss over them. So you mentioned meditation, you mentioned breathing, and um, do you have any uh, practices that you advocate, or is it just like, hey, go and like practice sitting down and being mindful, or do you have any very particular um, practices that you, that you tell people to partake in? Yeah, so I mean, breathing is a complex topic. We get into breathing, you could take hours uh, mm-hmm. to to, to look at different breathing techniques. There's, uh, I would just kind of say for your, your readers that, uh, want to learn more about breathing stuff. There's, there's a guy named Bill, uh, Hartman who's a PT out of Indianapolis. He's a good mm-hmm. friend of mine. Yep. He's got a, he's got a book called, uh, all gain, no pain. Okay. And in, in that book, he goes through a lot of different breathing exercises. And basically breathing is, is a pattern just like squatting, just like benching, just like any lift your, yep. your body develops these breathing habits, these breathing patterns. And some can be much more efficient or much more inefficient, depending on how your body is built and how you've learned to breathe, which, again, most people just do reflexively. Um, so Bill gives you a whole bunch of different types of exercises um, that can improve your essentially breathing efficiency, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and being able to have a full breath, basically be able to breathe all the way in and all the way out and having a good you know, respiratory function drives parasympathetic nervous system activity. So a lot of it is just learning how to breathe with these different patterns. Um, and again, I they can't really describe them or, or sure. get into details. You don't like counts or anything like that. It's just about mechanics. It's about mechanics and position, honestly. So there's a, there's a whole assessment you can do with essentially your infrasternal angle, which is the angle of body of your ribs to kind of evaluate, you know, what your breathing patterns look like. Mm-hmm. And then Bill gives you some different exercises and drills to go through. So number one is just actively using these sorts of breathing exercises to make your, yourself more efficient at breathing. And then number two is literally just spending time to relax. And that's just the meditation side of things. Um, so, and different people do it differently. Some people want to listen to music. Some people want to be in a, in a room with total silence. You know, some people want to be in a dark room. Some people want to have lights. It doesn't really matter. Whatever the person finds relaxing, even just spending five minutes a day, I've seen make huge differences or huge improvements in people's recovery because they're just so used to being in a sympathetic state, they never shut it off. And even just getting them to do that for five or 10 minutes breaks that cycle. It's just this big switch that gets turned on and all of a sudden their, their recovery goes up because they've shut that sympathetic system off. So there's there's lots of different apps out there. I mean, um, what's the what's the one that, uh, 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 blanking on the name, there's, there's, there's a ton of- Headspace meditation. or something. Yeah, Headspace, thank you, that's what I was thinking of. Headspace is out there, that one's a good one, I've used that. So whatever people, need to do to, to find that, you know, happy place and just relax for a minute is, is an important thing to do for five or 10 minutes a day. Like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be an hour. It doesn't have to be, you know, chanting and just, just getting yourself into that recovery state is, is, uh, really important for shutting that sympathetic system off again, even for a short period of time. So I would, I just look at both of those sides of things. It's number one, teaching them to breathe more effectively through a concerted breathing pattern and breathing exercises. And then number two, just finding time throughout the day to relax. If you can do those two things, I guarantee you you'll see people's recovery improve dramatically. How much do you manipulate um, intra-workout variables with respect to nutrition? So if someone, if you know someone of your athletes is in kind of a calorically depleted state or you know, they're, they're maybe not getting the carbohydrates they need to recover or maybe it's even their HRV is high, um, like what percent do you have like maybe a percentage you start knocking down volume or so would you knock down volume of work first or just take them completely out of that energy system and put them more into like their green conditioning zone? Um, it, it I mean, depends on the, depends on the situation, right? If, if someone's got a fight coming up, you know, they're going to have to do a certain volume of work. There's no way around that. So we're just going to manage that again by, uh, you know, making sure the intensity is not too high making sure their post-workout stuff is still in recovery, making sure their nutrient timing is all there. So, 
you know, it's, it's always just about putting all these pieces together. I would say the biggest, the biggest thing I try to avoid is a lot of high intensity training on a depleted carbohydrate uh, state. Because uh, basically, if you look at the research, if you do a lot of high intensity training, you deplete glycogen stores, what that does is, is cause a ton of inflammation. And that inflammation takes a lot longer to shut off if you're, again, in a sympathetic state. So actually, that's, that's one more thing I should mention about uh, HRV that's really fascinating is there's, there's a whole new field these days or in the last few years called neuroimmunology. And essentially what that does is looks at the connection between the nervous system and the immune system, right? And so what they find basically is that the sympathetic system drives inflammation, okay? Now, this makes sense if you think about it because – what is the sympathetic nervous system for, right? It's for fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the you know, biological sense, if you're out in the wild and you literally do encounter a fight or flight scenario, you want that immune system on high alert, mm -hmm. right? The immune system's job is to protect you from foreign invaders and to repair tissues that are damaged, right? So the people always think inflammation is bad. The inflammation is not bad. Inflammation is what starts the repair process. So if we are sympathetic, we are in an inherently pro-inflammatory state, okay? We have in inflammation being produced and supported through uh, production of what are called cytokines, which are little inflammatory markers. Mm -hmm. Now, the other side is the parasympathetic system. And what do you think the parasympathetic's job is? It's to turn off inflammation, okay? Its job is essentially to shut that process of inflammation down because it's going through the repair process. It doesn't need to have that signal anymore. It's actually starting the rebuilding the repair process. So again, HRV is kind of this overall gauge of inflammatory processes. When we see HRV really low, it tells us the body is under a lot of sympathetic stress and we're seeing a lot of inflammation. And over time, if the brain sees all this inflammation happening, that's where it starts to make changes that we would perceive as overtraining and perceive as things that are negative, appetite, you know, weight loss, all those sorts of things that would be, you know, through muscle loss, we would be bad. So um, essentially, what it's, again, what this comes down to is, you know, if someone is going to be in a depleted caloric state, that's fine. But what we want to not do is have them do a lot of training in a glycogen depleted state because that's just going to exacerbate that inflammatory response. So a lot of the training you know, adjustments and things you're making are, again, nutrient timing based. So if they're going to spar, they're going to lift. I don't want them doing that in this depleted carbohydrate state. So carbohydrates before, protein after right, is, is a more important way to look at it if someone's trying to drop some weight but still make sure they can get their, their volume and training that need into the, into the workout. That was the next the next question I wanted to dig into because we got a lot of people talking about if it fits your macros and it doesn't matter what time you take in nutrients. Um, so this is the you know the argument against that stuff, right? Is people say, oh, it doesn't yeah, matter absolutely. if you eat one meal or six or like. So talk to us about that. Like, I mean, you said that 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 you said it. You know, kind of answered the question already. But um, you know, if I if I know my sympathetic arousal is high, or I know maybe my body's in a stress state, taking those carbohydrates in before a workout to ensure that I'm bringing myself down to that state before I go in and train and make sure I get protein right after. Is that kind of the yeah, absolutely. Takeaway? It is. It's it's making it's essentially the more you train the glycogen depleted state, the more inflammation you're going to produce. You know, the slower you're essentially going to recover. Cause it's going to take more time to turn that inflammation off, and you're also not going to perform as well. So. The biggest thing, like I said, if people are, are, you know, in a caloric deficit and they're trying to lose some, some fat, you know, it does matter where the, what, where the timing of things happen because, you know, training in a, in a state where you have no carbs before the workout and then you just smash a thousand grams after the carbs, the workout is a different response than, than the exact opposite. So 
the training response is going to be dictated by what your nutritional state was when you trained mm. more than people realize. It's, it's not just what you shove in your body afterwards. It's what was the state when you trained because that's where all the signaling happens, right? It's The signaling happens inside the body as a result of the state of the body when you are training. So if you were in a very glycogen depleted, calorically depleted state, that's going to have a whole different cascade of signals than if you we're in a more normalized state. You had enough carbohydrates to train with. So the body basically, if you want to put it in the simplest terms, the body does not like being in a glycogen depleted state. It's a very stressful thing on the body because it tells the body like, hey, there's something wrong here. There's lots of exertion going on. I don't want to be in a glycogen depleted state. So it's it's a big alarm that gets set off as you start to deplete glycogen levels down to very low levels. And if you train, you know, 30, 60 minutes at fairly high intensities on low carbs, you're going to get there fairly quickly. How do you Especially feel if you do that about, over and over again. Yeah, how do you feel about fasted training? Uh, again, same, lower intensity. Same, same idea. You know, yeah, lower intensities mm-hmm. I think are fine. So mm-hmm. you know, the, the whole bodybuilder approach of using low intensity steady state stuff in the mornings with fasted, I think if you're you know trying to burn some fat, that's fine. It's, you're not going to chronically deplete glycogen at you know, four miles an hour in an incline treadmill. You, that's not going to happen because you're not going to tap into those glycogen stores. You're going to be burning more fat. So... What I would say is just if you're training in a fasted state, it needs to be a more low, moderate intensity. If you start getting up into the higher intensities where you're depleting glycogen, that's something I would try to avoid. What's the biggest mistake you see people making when it comes to burning fat? Uh, it's it's basically have too big of a caloric deficit. Uh, they, they switch on both ends, so they'll cut calories back quickly, and then they'll also ramp up their training dramatically at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you're essentially, like I told you, the body is limited in its energy production. So if you're all of a sudden doubling your energy input or expenditure for the day and you're cutting your calories in half, it's a way too big of a deficit. And these huge deficits, again, they trigger things in the body. They trigger you to be way hungrier than you think you're, you know, should be. And then you binge sometimes, or they're going to train you to not want to go to the gym on day five because your, your body's just so depleted. There's actually a great paper um, I can find for you where they looked at basically three groups of people. In group one, they did, I can't remember how they categorized it. It was like four kilowatts of extra, kilo, kilo, kilowatts of exercise a week. One did eight and then one did 12. So they looked at basically, they kept the, the calories, uh, the deficit relatively the same for these three groups. And you would inherently think, people would think like, hey, well, the, the exercise group that did 12 kilowatts must have lost more fat than the one that did eight, right? Well, that's actually not what happened. So there was a more fat loss in the middle group than there was in the first group. So from four kilowatts to eight kilowatts, there was greater fat loss. In other words, they worked out twice as much. They did lose more fat. But interestingly enough, the group that worked out the most, the 12, only lost as much fat as the very first group. So they lost less fat than the second group and literally was identical to the first group. So in other words, they tripled the amount of activity they did. They didn't actually lose any more. I don't think it was body fat. I think it was measured weight. They didn't lose any more weight than the group that did the lowest amount of exercise. And the group that did the moderate lost the most. So, you, again, it's this faulty thinking to be like, okay, I'm going to burn more fat. Well, how do I do that? Well, I'm just going to cut my calories in half, and then I'm going to go train twice as much. It's it's just creating way too big of a deficit. The body does not like that. So I, I think you know most people are much better off with more of like a 500, three to 500 calorie deficit will work a lot longer in the long run than trying to do a 1500 calorie or 2000 calorie deficit, um, you know, without realizing they're in that big a deficit. That's I think the biggest mistake people make is too much too fast and expecting it to happen overnight. Do you like any particular ratios of macronutrients for improvement in body composition? Uh, that's a tough one. I don't, I don't know that there's a, a universal. I've, again, I've seen people do do fine on, on higher carbs and I've seen some people, you know, do much better on a little bit lower carbs. I would say in general, um, I like to keep the protein a pounded pound per uh, or one gram per pound of body weight. I think it's a pretty universal and simple rule to apply. 
Um, and then carbohydrates would kind of be activity dependent, honestly. If, if you're going to sure. go do a lot of intensity, high intensity training, then I would keep the, the carbohydrates a little bit higher uh, and, and the fat a little bit lower. And if you're going to do a little bit less training, I would, you know, have the inverse of that. So um, the, the biggest thing is, you know, just making sure that that begin that big picture of total calories is there. I don't think there's a massive difference between 40 percent carbs and 50 percent carbs or 60 percent carbs. As long as the overall calories are there and the nutrient quality is there. Um, and the timing is there. I think that's the most important thing. Perfect, man. And you're saying so many things in passing that I want to acknowledge is like, you know, you're saying the quality of the nutrients rather than just the quantity matters. Because um, sometimes it, to you, it's just you know, like, you know, it, it's obvious. But to some of our listeners, if you don't acknowledge, they won't, they won't, uh, their brain won't kind of take it in. Um, is there any um, carbohydrate or, or protein sources that you tend to lean toward more? Like, are you a fructose guy or, you, you know, a, a rice guy or are you wild meat does it matter like any particular or fat sources even any particular foods that you tend to migrate toward more for performance um you know i i i know it's kind of a cliche but actually think kind of a variety is a good thing mm-hmm. um but a variety within the person did individual uh you know responses so again diet is one of those things i can tell you just from looking at hrv data one person can eat rice and look great another person has a response to it and you see it tank through hrv so it's hard to give generic, you know, everybody should go eat these things um, type of recommendations just because I've seen so much varied responses. But I would say, you know, a variety in terms of fruits and vegetables for just health is is important. And I'm not saying go gorge yourself on fruit if you're trying to lose weight, but just getting a good variety of quality nutrients from fruits and vegetables is, is important for, you know, health and making sure you're not deficient in things. Other than that, you know, I think lean lean meats, I don't care if it's chicken, fish, salmon, again, I think a variety of protein sources is better than getting all your protein from a single source. Um, and same thing with fats, really. You know, it's 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 more about a, a variety of these different things that your body responds well to than trying to, say, eat these exact same things every single day. I think it's better to have, um, you know, again, just, just more variety in your diet than that. How much are you uh, attempting to impact or influence an athlete's psychological state or mindset or motivation like that? Like, as a nutritional coach, are you um, – giving them any strategies or, or uh, taking part in any way in their psychological well-being and, and mindset? Uh, it depends on the athlete. You know, some some athletes need a lot more help than others, I would say, on that end of things. Um, I worked with a guy named uh, Brian Kane, who's, who's, you know, what I would call a performance, mental performance type of guy. So mm-hmm. if there's if there's somebody who I really think needs, you know, that end, like that's that's not my specialty, so I'll, I'll refer to Brian or to somebody else. Correct. You know, if it's just, if it's just kind of your average – um, you know, guy who needs some, some help, you know, I'll, I'll certainly try some different things in terms of just a lot of it's mindset driven, a lot of it's habit driven, a lot of those sorts of things and making sure they, they understand why they're doing the things they're doing, that they're accountable for the things they're doing. They record actually, you know what the simplest thing people can do, honestly, it's, it's mind bogglingly simple. Just recording what you eat and recording your training literally makes a difference. There's research on this showing it makes a difference in how likely you are to stick to these things that you're doing and whether or not you're actually following them. So there's a lot of really simple things like that. Like, again, just making sure people are tracking them, making sure they're accountable to things um, that I'll start with. And again, if, if someone's got a more, you know, you're, I'm in the fight business, people are head cases in general, you know, some of those, some of those stress, things, man, someone's trying to yeah, kill you, right? Exactly. I mean, I mean, there's maybe something wrong with you because you want to be in that profession in the first place. I don't know. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, some, some people you can certainly uh, just kind of come up with some strategies that make a big difference. And some people you want to send to somebody who's, you know, got more experience in that end and that's their that's their whole job very cool man how do you eat on a day-to-day basis you eat um any particular 
style or just kind of whatever you feel like eating that day? Yeah, so I, I actually like uh, varying my carbs a bit. So um, I do a little bit of intermittent fasting, and then when I'm when I'm doing that, I'll, I'll you know keep my intensity, my uh, cardio really low. So I'll usually ride bike, uh, just go for a bike ride, or keep my uh, intensity fairly low. And then I'll usually do uh, four days of lower carb and three days of higher carb. So I, I tend to cycle my nutrients like that quite a bit. I tend to uh, respond better if, if if I'm trying to lose fat. Then I'll essentially kind of have four caloric deficit days and three maintenance days. If I'm trying to do the opposite, I'll kind of have four to five caloric surpluses and a couple days of maintenance or even a slight deficit. So I tend to rotate things um, quite a bit. And again, that's in concert with my lifting. So I eat more of my carbs on my lifting days, uh, which are typically uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, more heavy lifting. Then I'll eat lower carbs on my lower intensity cardio days. So it, it changes depending on the day, but I just personally uh, like to cycle things up. Do you have any uh, interventions to improve sleep for whether it be yourself or uh, your athletes? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of things. The, the first one kind of goes back to what we talked about with sympathetic stimulants, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, people are, are drinking coffee at 8, 9 o'clock at night wondering why they can't sleep at 11. So, I have no idea. Um, yeah, yeah no, number one is just looking at that is, is making sure their stimulants are, uh, you know, cut out in, in, in a timely fashion throughout the day. Um, I would say number two is actually making sure their sleeping environment what it needs to be. What boggles my mind is people spend, you know, how much money on their cars and their houses, and then they'll get some like $800 mattress that's just, you know, dirt sure. cheap. I mean, people should invest. Put in an 80-inch TV in their bedroom. Yeah, but exactly. So it's looking at the environment. You know, what is their, you know, when's the last time you buy a new mattress? You know, how comfortable is it? There's a, there's a, um, a mattress company called Helix, which I really like. You can basically personalize your bed. So mm. you can put in a bunch of stuff about your weight and how firm or how soft and all these different things, how plush, and they'll basically custom make you a mattress and ship it out to you. If you don't like it, you can send it back, which is mm -hmm. really cool. So um, I like that aspect a lot, but I think looking at the mattress, again, you know, make sure there's no TV, looking at how dark it is, looking at noise, just really trying to optimize that sleeping environment is the second thing. And then number three is if you've taught them how to turn off that sympathetic system through, again, breathing exercises, through meditation, through all those sorts of things, and they need to be doing those sort of things, as they you know get ready for bed that basically it's a skill okay totally. learning how to shut that system off is a skill and once you learn that skill then you can use it to shut off after a workout you can use it to get yourself ready for bed you can do it for all those sorts of things um, and i would say four it's it's about it's actually about consistency of when you go to sleep but what people have a hard time with is if their sleep schedule is hugely varied then their sleep is going to be a lot less uh, quality or they're going to have a lot less um, a lot more problems with it than if they try to go to bed at basically the same time every single night and they've actually shown that quite a bit People who sleep, you know, totally different hours in the weekend versus the week tend to have worse, more problems, essentially, the people that go to bed consistently, even on the weekends, which sucks. For sure. Yeah. Um, but just trying to be, I would just say, you know, you don't have to be perfect, but just trying to make your sleep schedule and habits as consistent as possible makes a big difference as well. Right. The thing that's moved the needle for me most on sleep, man, is when, when most people can't sleep, they usually try to do something, right? They, they either get up and try to watch TV or play on their phone or something, or even if it's read, all those usually require putting a light on. For me, it's like, just taking that time, and for the first little while, it sucks. Where you, you know, maybe you're meditating, and you're breathing, or doing something internal, like calming your mind, or doing a gratitude practice, or um, you know, some type of mindfulness practice. And, and the first couple of weeks, it's challenging, but eventually, it becomes a superpower where you can, I can literally count backwards from ten and fall back asleep, or, or count back from ten and fall asleep to begin with. Um, so, creating that internal uh, control over your ability to fall back asleep has really been a kind of a superpower for me lately, man. Because I used to, like many people, like many bodybuilders, especially, have a hard time falling asleep or staying asleep. And you get up and you know, like checking your phone or you know, watch TV or whatever the hell you're trying to do, and, and they think that's putting them back to sleep because ultimately it tires them out. But 
um, you know, the sleep pressure builds up. But ultimately, as soon as you learn to kind of take that internal control over your ability to fall asleep, my, you know, my sleep has been dramatically improved. And anytime I wake up, it's just a matter of seconds before I fall back asleep, which has uh, been a huge difference maker for me. Do you pay attention to light at all? Like um, cutting down people's light before bed? or Yes. Yeah, I, I, yeah, light makes a huge difference. I would say lighting your phones, lighting your TV, all that stuff absolutely uh, makes a big difference. I've got a cabin up in the mountains and uh, I've got this room downstairs I sleep in. It's like a cave. There's no windows in it. And it's when man, you, you shut the door. Like you have my life, man. I'm, move, I'm moving <laughs> to Kirkland, I think. Yeah, there you go. So uh, anyway, I, the, the weird thing is when I'm when I'm at home, I can I usually wake up you know, maybe once a night to go to the bathroom and mm -hmm. I can have this weird innate sense of what time it is. And I'll usually just try and guess what time it is. And I can see in my bathroom what time it is. And I, for some reason, I'm just usually pretty close. But yep. When I go to the cabin, it's dark in that room. I, I can have no sense. Like I wake up and have no idea what time it is. And you just have a much deeper level of sleep if you're in a completely dark environment. So, you know, whatever people can do, adding blackout blinds or, um, you know, making sure their doors are closed and their lights are off and their phones are turned off and TV, you know, all those sorts of things. Any sort of thing you can do to minimize light when you're sleeping seems to have a really big impact on the, the depth and the quality of the sleep that you get. Very cool. Any special supplements that you like to use, whether it be for cognitive performance or anything at all? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, a big range. It really depends on the topic or the you know the goal. But I, I, yeah. in general, I like the cognitive supplementation. Honestly, I've played around with probably every nootropic known to man, from you know the racetams to um, different choline sources to you know hydrogen to uh, depranil. I mean, I've tried all of them, and, and I think they all have. Uh, they're pros and cons, but mm -hmm. I personally um, will we'll stick to it. Just a little bit of Depranil uh, three times a week, like one milligram. I'll get enough choline each day, and then I'll kind of rotate through some of the, the Rastams, Pyrocetum or Oxyracetum. Or, What's your favorite source of choline? Uh, Alpha GPC is mm -hmm. usually what I use. Uh, it's a good one, but and, I played around with different ones. And one milligram of Depranil, you find enough three times a week? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the the older you get from what I've read, the, the probably the more you need to start Stephen taking them. folks. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. almost forty. I'll start. Maybe I'll start taking a gram a day every, every day here. But for now, I've been doing a gram every uh, three days a week or so. Um, so that, that's on the nutrition side, or sorry, on the on the cognitive side. Um, I, I tend to not, uh, you know, overdo a lot of supplements. I mean, I'll take in a protein shake here and there if, if I'm not getting enough to my food. Um, but the more and more you, I've looked at stuff, the more you find like I don't know if you saw this, but there was a paper that saw that basically found if you Take in a bunch of caffeine before you work out, which is a very common thing to do. Uh, it can actually blunt some of the aerobic response. In other words, it can actually blunt some of the effectiveness of the workout. And simply, yep. if you improve the performance of a workout artificially, you're just minimizing the stress of that workout and kind of taking away the the, the response, which is the you know the improvements you want to see. So I tend to not use a lot of pre-workout supplements. You know, I, I don't use. Uh, a lot of those stimulants and that into things. So I, I don't use a ton. Um, I, personally, my, my family has a really bad history of heart disease. So I use uh, red rice, red, red yeast, rice, mm -hmm. red rice yeast, whatever it is, uh, which quite a bit. And I've, I've measured my LD levels, LDL levels quite a bit. And that's, that's improved it. So, you know, it's funny, the older you get, the more I'm focusing on just staying alive and healthy versus trying to, you know, get big and strong. It's just changing perspective as you age, I guess. For sure, man. And that's kind of the new direction of my life is, you know, after a long time uh, aspiring to be the biggest human being on the planet now, it's like, how can I live longest and, and inspire the greatest number of people to live their greatest life, man? That's why I 
reached out to you, man, because I realized that uh, HRV is massive, whether it be for an athlete or just someone looking to optimize health and longevity. So, uh, man, I'm, I'm totally grateful for what you're doing. And uh, please continue to lead this this area because there's very few people, at least as far as I can see, who are very well versed and um, you know, do such a great job of kind of spreading the message of HRV and energy system type training because, now, to me, this is this is the next frontier of how to optimize performance, right? If you're not paying attention to this stuff, you're just not performing well, right? Like, but I don't think anyone in the bodybuilding space pays attention to HRV. Not that anyone that I've seen, um, nope. you know. So again, as I, as I exit that world and, and head more into just overall longevity and health, this is at the forefront of my uh, focus. So thank you, man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's really important. Uh, you know, a few years ago, my mom had a stroke, and uh, just this last year, my dad passed away from from cardiovascular. Right he basically had a heart attack. Yeah, yeah he, he had he had a triple bypass, and then a year later, he passed away uh, in his fifties, late fifties, actually. And wow. and uh, my my mom had a stroke in her sixties. So, I've really got bad genetics, unfortunately, on both sides of the family. And and just the more you see these things happen around you, and the more you realize, uh, you know, people don't realize it, but literally one third, I mean, over one third, actually, in the U.S. at least one third of the population will die of cardiovascular disease or a stroke, which is related to it. So literally you have one out of every three people dying from something that's largely preventable. I mean, 60 to 70% of the stuff is preventable through a good training, nutrition, and, you know, lifestyle. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not like these things are, you know, walking down the street and getting hit by a bus. You know, this is something that's completely in your control. You can control, you know, whether or not you get cardiovascular disease to a large extent. And yet one out of every three people are going to die of that. So, do you I mean, think the more you, your intervention is primarily just managing H HRV, or are you yeah, looking at absolutely. things like deuterium and like uh, what, what well, are you looking at? I think I think all those things are going to look at all, all those things are going to correlate to HRV, honestly. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking oh, at yeah. just a, you know if you're looking at just a broad marker, HRV is the easiest thing. But mm -hmm. um, I, I personally go get a lipid profile done every six months too, just because uh, basically what I discovered from looking at the stuff of why my cardio, my family has these issues we just have genetically low HDL um, HDLs never very high and my LDLs higher than it should be given everything that I do to try to prevent that. Mm -hmm. So uh, you just kind of have to counteract some of your genetics if you got on the unfortunate side of that stick. But you know, I think all those things, again, they're going to generally reflect themselves in HRV. So you don't have to be measuring cholesterol every single day. You can measure every few months and use HRV more as your overall yardstick of health and wellness. And again, there's there's lots of research now. There's actually just a, a paper done that looked at uh, basically VO2 max, I believe it was. They looked at you know, essentially, was there a diminishing point in terms of longevity? And basically, they found that higher is, higher is almost always better to a pretty certain yep. degree. Like, yep. there's, you know, you want to develop, again, there's, there, there is a point of diminishing returns like I talked about, but most people are not there yet. You know, most average people could improve their HRV and improve their aerobic fitness pretty significantly and see significant benefits um, before they would ever hit that wall of, you know, enough's, enough's enough. Joel, where can everybody find Morpheus? Uh, trainwithmorpheus.com. So, uh, like I said, right now we're preparing for the next band. We call it the M5 band, uh, and that will be out, you know, May or June. People can pre-order them actually right now and reserve one of them when they when they're ready to ship. Um, but trainwithmorpheus.com is where you can find all that kind of stuff. And then eight weeks out is the website, and they can find articles and videos and kind of just everything else we've talked about is probably discussed in some article somewhere on the site. Amazing, man! I look forward to the helicopter ride in Vancouver when I get out there. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. It's a beautiful area to go fly around for sure. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much for your time, buddy. No problem. Thanks for having me. Have a great one. And that's a wrap, everybody. I hope you enjoy my chat with Joel Jameson. What a wealth of information. If you did take notes, 
Let me know what you liked. Let me know what you loved. Let me know what you learned. Head over to iTunes right now. Leave us a review. Joel wants to hear from you. Head over to trainwithmorpheus.com and pick up Morpheus. I know I'm going to, absolutely. Uh, if you haven't already checked out BioForce HRV system, Joel's got a course training coaches on how to optimize energy systems and how to utilize this HRV tool. Incredible amounts of information uh, over at Joel's resources. Uh, and as always, share the episode with one person you love just to continue to drive this mission. You know, I created this podcast because I have an incredible passion for helping people live their greatest life. And I'm really blessed to have your ear, and I'm truly grateful for you. Uh, thank you for being here. As always, uh, you guys are amazing. I get so much amazing feedback on social media that I'm truly grateful for every day. And thank you for everyone who shares and who likes the podcast. Uh, you guys thank you for keeping this going. It's definitely a passion project of mine and grateful to be here. Enjoy your day, live your greatest life in your greatest body. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.